Is it hot in here? I don't know how to control that. (laughs) There's a lot of people fanning. I don't know. I mean, the worship was good, so maybe it was that. Um, You can go ahead and get your Bible out if you've got it on your phone or if you've got one with you. There's some in the back over there, too, if you want to grab one. Open it up to Matthew chapter 7. While you do that, I just want to make a quick uh, plug, if you will. The video that you saw about VBS that's coming up, it said, um, we want the gospel to reach your neighborhood. We mean that. Uh, Whether you live in Vincent Place or Canterbury or Woodneath or Staley Farms or in Gladstone or Newmark or wherever the case might be, we as a church, we want the gospel uh, to reach your neighborhood. We want every individual that lives on your street or in your subdivision to passionately be able to say, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. We, we desperately want that uh, as a staff and as a church. And so part of what we do here in order to make the gospel known is that we do VBS over the summer. Um, it, like Jim said, it requires a lot of people to pull that off every summer. Uh, and we want it to be something that as a church isn't, we don't just look at it and say that's children's ministries thing and they do that and we don't worry about it. Um, they can use anybody, literally anybody. And so before we just jump into the message and you forget about that announcement or the thing in your bulletin, I want to give you one last plug to, if you're available, to consider giving uh, your time to helping with that effort in some way. I promise they can use you. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help out, and they're just going to like give me a task where I can't hurt something or break something or uh, do damage to whatever is going on there. And so if you want to join me in whatever that task is, uh, just fill that, that little form out. They'll give you, the children's ministry will give you a call to talk about what it looks like for you to be involved. You can ask questions out at the Kids Point uh, Welcome Center over there. Other exciting stuff going on here at the church. Our men's retreat was last week. Our women's retreat uh, is finishing up this morning. I've heard wonderful things about both, and so encourage you in the future to take advantage of those. Sound good? All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're on like a two-week run here. Last week's passage that Bob taught on about judgment, and this week's passage on ask, seek, knock. Uh, Those are both kind of Christian classics. Um, you, You probably don't have to have gone to church or spent much time with the Bible at all to have heard someone say, well, you're not supposed to judge. Or to hear someone, you know, reference, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. Unfortunately, they're both relatively misused. And Bob did a fantastic job last week of talking about what does that passage about judging mean? What does it mean to see the log in your own eye and and try to remove that before you try to go after the speck in someone else's eye? And that we're called to be discerning. And that as brothers and sisters in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then we're called to uh, sometimes lovingly confront what's going on in a brother or sister's life uh, so as to be an instrument that the Lord uses in order to move that person uh, more into looking like Jesus and living a life that he would have lived and that the issue isn't so much calling those kinds of things out. It's about condemning people. It's about seeing something in their life and thinking less of them because of their sin or their struggle or their temptation, whatever the case might be. And Bob gave just this incredible picture of we've got to understand that we are broken to dust 
and cannot be repaired. And God has shown us that much mercy for each and every one of us. And he unpacked that incredibly well. We're going to have to do a similar kind of deconstruction on this morning's verses, Matthew 7, 7 to 12. And so I'm going to go ahead and read those. Uh, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. There is a diversity of orthodox or right Christian belief on this passage. And in fact, I did a a stack of reading. And every time I came to another scholar or pastor and I listened to what they had to say or read what they had to say, they put a little bit, another wrinkle or nuance into this particular passage. And that's okay. Christianity, uh, Orthodox Christianity is a wide channel. And at times there are a couple of lanes that you can swim in on certain things and be well within the bounds of what the Bible teaches and, and even well within what is Orthodox in terms of interpreting a passage of Scripture. And so this is one of those. But it's also one that commonly gets used to teach something false. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to say what this passage isn't and be very clear about that. Then we're going to look at kind of two camps that this passage typically falls in. And then last, we'll say, here's what we know for certain. And what we know for certain uh, is this. We'll circle around back to it over and over again. It's that in all things, depend on the unchanging nature of your good, good father. I want to start with what this passage is not. And here's why. Matthew 7-7 is one of a few verses that becomes the poster child for what's known as the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. Um, It unfortunately gets lifted out of its context and used to teach something that is false. You have maybe heard it called name it and claim it theology, Um, but here's what it teaches. It's a false doctrine that God wants all Christians to be physically healthy materially wealthy, and personally happy. This particular framework is used by uh, a number of pastors and teachers that you can find uh, on television or all over the internet, or you can find books by them. They take a few biblical verses, and they lift them out of their context, and then they, they try to get them to say or to teach something that is not what the Bible intends. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want to give you a few of the other verses that they commonly reference. Uh, Matthew 7, 7 is one. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is another. You can jot that one down. James 4, verse 2. And Mark 10, verse 30. Those are kind of like the poster children verses for the prosperity gospel or for name it and claim it theology. The basic idea is that if you're not physically healthy, materially wealthy, and personally happy, then there's something wrong with your faith. That you just need to pray harder, or you need to believe more deeply, or you need to do more good stuff, and then God will give you his blessing. In fact, usually there's even uh, slid into the midst of that, there's a call for, if only you would put $10 in an envelope and send it to the address on the screen, or call the phone number and make a donation, then God will give back to you tenfold or a hundredfold, and 
uh, you'll get more than you have given. There are plenty of errors with this kind of thinking that are not biblical in any way. Let me give you a few of them. The first is that we give in order to get. That's false. You only have to go a little ways up in the Sermon on the Mount, back to chapter 6, to understand exactly what Jesus has to say about the attitude with which we give, and it has nothing to do with getting in return. In fact, he flat out condemns that. The next is that we act in order to force God to act. Also not true. We don't do our Christ-like things. We don't live authentic, genuine Christian lives in order to force God to act. In fact, uh, when I was in high school uh, and in college, embarrassingly, uh, I often thought that like, if I had a particularly sin-free week, I would do better on the test <laughs> that was like coming up or like the thing that was going on in life, if I just acted good enough, then it would force God to be good in return back to me. That's not true. That's false. Another is that we pray in order to force God's hand, that if I just pray a little bit more, a little bit harder, or if I use the right words or say it enough times, then God is obligated to do what I'm asking of him. That's not true. Maybe the most crucial error, kind of the one that is most subversive to what is actually biblically true, is that we don't put our faith in God. Instead, we leverage our faith at God. If you would just have more faith, then he will do fill in the blank that you want him to do. That's not true. It turns God into a vending machine, essentially. You know, it's 2.30 at work, you're tired, and you're trying to stay awake, and you open up your desk drawer, and there's like $1.50 worth of change there, and so you grab it, and you go to the vending machine, and there are like some healthy options, but those aren't going to help you stay awake, but there are also Skittles, and so you're like, I'm going to get those. So you put in your coins, and you look at whatever the little number says underneath the Skittles, and you punch that in, and out come the Skittles that you so desire. The vending machine is like the holder of all good things, and all you have to do is the right sequence, and you get what you want. The prosperity gospel turns God into that. That he is the keeper of all of these good things that you so desire, and all you've got to do is pray the right way, or act the right way, or do the right thing, or give the right amount, and then he will spit back out to you what you want. That's false. It's not true. Could you take a couple of verses in the Bible and lift them out of their context and try to get it to say that? You could. Does that make it true? No, it doesn't. And let me give you kind of the bottom line on why this is so dangerous. The reason that it's so dangerous is because the prosperity gospel isn't the gospel. That's just not what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is or what he came to do or how God interacts or what his character is. In fact, one of the central points of Christianity is that when you place your faith in Jesus as your Savior, you get off the throne of your life, and He gets on, and now He's in control. But with the prosperity gospel, you are still in control. You are the one that dictates what God does. You are the one that controls what comes into and out of your life, and that simply is not biblically accurate. Your life if you've put your faith in Jesus, is to become this vessel by which he makes the gospel known to the ends of the earth. And that means that he has ultimate control over your life. 
this type of prosperity gospel teaching claims that if only you would pray with enough faith, if only you would give the right amount, if only you would do the right things, then God will act accordingly on your behalf. And that simply isn't the case. As you interact, uh, whether it be um, out on the internet or if you're listening to things or you're watching television and something uh, is on, we need to be able as believers to discern if what somebody is teaching or if the thing that we're reading is biblically accurate. And there's a wonderful article by John Piper where he gives six tips for being able to spot this kind of prosperity gospel teaching. If you just go out and, and Google the John Piper prosperity gospel, this will pop up. But I'm going to give you the six. The article uh, is obviously longer than just six little bullet points. Um, but I think they're incredibly helpful. So how can you spot name it and claim it, health, wealth, gospel kind of teaching. The first is, is the advancement of self greater than the advancement of God? Is the advancement of self greater than the advancement of God? If so, this person is probably teaching some version of the prosperity gospel. The second is an absence of serious explanation of Scripture. In absence of serious explanation of Scripture. And it relates very closely to the third one, which is a refusal to, de- to deal with the tensions that come from their teaching. Here's what both of those mean. If I'm going to take Matthew 7, 7 and turn it into some sort of like carte blanche statement for me to get anything that I want from God, I've got to be willing to wrestle with a couple of questions, such as, Jesus was homeless. What do you do with that? The disciples, in, uh, after Jesus leaves, the apostles, they don't live materially wealthy, physically healthy, always happy lives. What do, I, what do you do with the fact that most of them, all of them, died as martyrs? Paul slaves away to make tents so that he can support his ministry. And at times, he's, he's having these churches from other places facilitate him being able to continue to go and and to share the gospel. What do you do with that? Well, within prosperity gospel teaching, there's an unwillingness to engage with those kinds of questions. That's one of the ways you can spot it. The fourth one is this. Does the leader live an extravagant lifestyle? Typically, within this kind of teaching, somebody's getting very, very wealthy, and it probably isn't you. It's probably the person teaching The fifth is there's no teaching on the biblical normalcy of suffering. The Bible makes it very clear that if you follow Christ at times, there will be suffering. That's just a reality. And you can go straight back up to Matthew chapter 5 and look at the Beatitudes. And the last one says that you will be persecuted because of righteousness. It's there. You can't get away from it. And then the last one is that there's no call to biblical self-denial. The Sermon on the Mount is pretty clear on that as well. You don't lay up treasure on earth. You lay it up in heaven. And so that is what these verses don't say. There may be a a diversity of opinion within biblical Christianity on exactly how you interpret Matthew Matthew 7, 7 to 11, 7 to 12. But everybody within Orthodox biblical Christianity is on the same page in saying this is not about get what you want from the Lord if you use the right words. This is not the prosperity gospel. So there are two kind of camps that uh, wise, intelligent, faithful Christians fall into when it comes to these verses. One is 
kind of a spiritual reading of it, and one is a material reading. Both are biblically accurate. Both line up with what Scripture says elsewhere. Both are safe and good in terms of their application. So we're going to look at both briefly um, and talk about both of them. I lean toward one, and I'll share that with you uh, toward the end here. The first we're going to talk about is this spiritual reading of it. This interpretation of these verses views Matthew 7, 7 to 12 as wrapping up everything in the Sermon on the Mount to this point. Following this, if you kind of look at the headings uh, in your Bible going forward, Jesus is going to start talking a whole lot about eternity. Who ends up in heaven and who doesn't? And so this passage that we're in today, about half of people say, is Jesus wrapping up everything that began in chapter 5 all the way down through where we are in chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible, flip back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to look at the headings of each of these sections. And if you've been here over the last couple of months, you can kind of think back to each of these messages. The first one that you see is about the Beatitudes. And it's, it's teaching that the follower of Jesus has a heart that understands their spiritual bankruptcy and is just fundamentally different than the rest of the world around them. And then after that is the passage on salt and light. To where if you are a person who has that kind of heart, then you are light in a dark world. You are salt. It's just you cannot help it. That's how your life manifests itself in the world around you. Then there are a number of sections that come next that are about how a follower of Christ relates with the law. And that we lean into the fact that Christ has fulfilled it on our behalf. And so it's not our job to earn our salvation in some way by doing all the right stuff. Instead... It's our job to put our trust in Christ and his work on the cross and in his life and in his resurrection from the dead and that that brings us salvation. And instead, we pursue the heart of the Father in giving the law. So it's not just that you don't murder someone. It's that you don't harbor anger and hatred in your heart. It's not just that you don't lust or or you don't commit adultery or get a divorce. It's that you don't lust after someone. That's the heart of the Father. And he... Jesus walks through a number of those about being honest and not retaliating and loving your enemies. And then he talks about how a believer lives out their religious life, not for personal congratulation, but instead independence upon the Father in your giving and in your praying and in your fasting. Then he does the same thing in your actual daily physical life, that it's not about laying up stuff for yourself on earth. It's about laying up treasure in heaven and depending on the Lord to to give you what you need while you live here on the earth. And then Bob talked about judgment last week. And that brings us to the end of those kinds of passages. And you should get there as a follower of Jesus and take an honest, hard look at your life and say, I'm not great at some of those things. The beauty of the Sermon on the Mount is that it wasn't said just to inform us. Jesus said it to transform us. And then at the end of that, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. If you see one of these areas in life where you struggle to line up with what Jesus is describing in Scripture, then just pray. Pray that God would give you the right heart in your giving. Pray that God would help you to see your spiritual bankruptcy. Pray that God would give you a heart that longs to to see his heart in the commands that he gives, that we are to be learning to pray for the heart and character of a follower of Jesus while trusting in God to provide. That's the kind of spiritual take on these verses. If you've got uh, a Bible, put your finger in Matthew chapter 7 and flip over to Luke 11 really quickly. 
In Luke 11, there's a parallel to this passage, and a lot of it is verbatim. Jesus talks, he teaches his disciples about prayer, then he gives this quick little illustration of a friend of yours comes to you in the night, and they have some sort of need, and he says, aren't you going to wake up and give them what they're asking for? And then he says this, I'm starting in verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Those who view these passages in light of kind of a spiritual application about praying for uh, your own growth and character of a Christian, they look at that and they say, God's willing to give you the Holy Spirit, to seal you with that, and then to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, to mold you and conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And he's just giving his disciples one last reminder that sometimes you might need to pray for that. But even in those things, you can pray and depend on the fact that God is good. He's going to provide. He's a good, good father. And when you ask for those things, he's graciously and willingly going to give them. I want to give you a couple of application points Is it relates to that reading of these verses. The first is that we should persist in prayer for our spiritual growth. We should ask, we should seek, we should knock, we shouldn't stop in it. Think back over the last week or so about the things that you prayed for. Probably some health concerns for some people, maybe um, a situation that's going on in your life, but how much did you actually really dig in and pray about your spiritual growth? Typically, our prayers in this regard are like at the end of the service or at the end of the Bible study or the end of the small group, and we were learning about patience. And so we we sat there and we said, God, help me be more patient right now because I'm not going to pray about it again. I need you to do that today, like in the next 10 minutes. No, we should persist in those things. When we hold up the Sermon on the Mount or any part of Scripture and we allow it to reveal our hearts and it teaches us about who God is and what He desires for our lives and we look into it and we see somewhere where there is space for us to grow, then we should persist in prayer over those things. I mean, when was the last time you just spent weeks praying about the Lord working and molding you or changing or transforming or challenging you in some area of your life? We tend to pray for those quickly and then run on to something else. Persist in prayer over spiritual growth. The second is understand that in all things, God is trying to mold you into the image of Jesus. You might be here this morning in the midst of a very difficult time in your life. God is a good, good father. He will not waste your pain He will not waste the challenging circumstances that come along in your life, even if you have brought those upon yourself. He's trying to mold you into the image of Jesus. You might be here this morning and be in the midst of one of the most exciting, exhilarating, exuberant, celebratory times of your life. And in the exact same way, God's not going to waste those moments either. He wants to mold you into the image of Jesus. So we should be looking for that. Those are good gifts from our Father in heaven. Be they painful or wonderful. They're good gifts from the Lord. The second reading uh, of this is more material in its nature. It takes these verses. It looks back at Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus talks about uh, 
prayer and where he talks about worrying and stuff. And it says, well, both examples in the passage are physical. If, you're, if your child asks you for a fish, you're not going to give him a serpent. If your child asks you for bread, you're not going to give him a stone. So Jesus must be talking about material things. And it fits right in with what Jesus taught in the passage on prayer, that you ask for your necessities, and because God is good and loving and cares for his children, he's going to provide. It doesn't say you ask for whatever you want, and God will give it to you. It says you learn to pray for necessity, and you trust God to provide for you. If you are a parent, an earthly parent, this says, and even though you're broken and sinful and at times you don't always do the right thing, you know how to give good things to your children. How much more so your Father who is in heaven, who's perfect and holy and loves you unendingly, how much more is he going to give you good things as well? That's sound biblical theology. It still comes back to the same point, though, that in all things you trust, you depend on the unchanging nature of your good, good father. Let me give you a couple of applications here. The first is that you ask for what you need, keyword need, and you trust in God's goodness. The second is that you may not get what you ask for, but you trust in God's goodness. When I was five years old, I desperately wanted a new bike for Christmas. I had a bike, a perfectly functional bike. I just wanted a new one. And so I went to my parents and I said, hey, parents, I'd like a new bike for Christmas, to which they said, no. But I thought, in this particular situation, there's a way to go over mom and dad's head. So we went to see Mall Santa Claus. And I sat there on Mall Santa Claus's lap, and I looked him dead in the eye with mom standing back there, and I said, I want a new bike. My mom's in the background going, no, because that's how you communicate with Mall Santa. And so Santa said, no. Winter's not a good time to get a bike. You know, he was uh, diplomatic about it, but he told me no. And so I woke up on Christmas morning thinking I had pushed the right buttons to get what I wanted from the vending machine. And I went running downstairs to the living room. There's no bike. But that's okay because bikes go in the garage, right? So I go over and I swing open the garage and there's my old bike, but there's no new bike. Instead, the gift from Santa that Christmas had been this incredibly awesome Ninja Turtle-like you could build a sewer, and like, it was this, it was awesome. <laughs> For whatever reason, my parents decided that I didn't need a bicycle that Christmas. It didn't make sense to get a bike in the middle of winter in Missouri. Instead, I got this Ninja Turtle set, and I got years worth of good play out of the Ninja Turtle set. It was a very good thing. But I just really wanted the bike, and so there I am on Christmas morning, bawling my eyes out, throwing like, you know, a five-year-old temper tantrum, even though I had gotten a very good gift from my parents. Oftentimes, we do this to the Lord. We want something, so we spend time praying for it. It could be something we need financially. It could be in regard to a situation or something circumstantially in our life, and then we don't get it. And we assume that that means that instead, God has given us a snake, God, I wanted this thing and it was good and so I prayed for it and I asked for it and you didn't do it. Instead, you've given me the snake when in reality, oftentimes we get down the road and we look back and we realize, no, I was asking for the snake in that moment and he's too good to give it. He wouldn't do it. 
There have been numerous times in my life where I spent seasons of life or months of life desperately praying for what I thought I knew was good and I never got it. And I look back from this vantage point and I say, thank you, God. Thank you for not giving me the snake even though I asked for it repeatedly. He's too good for that. He won't do it. You might not get what you ask for, but he is good and we've got to be willing to look for the good gift that he's giving us instead. I tend to lean toward this passage being uh, the spiritual reading, if you will. Um, I'm not married to that. I'm certainly willing to be wrong. You can come up after the service and tell me I'm definitely wrong, and we can have a conversation about it. But let me tell you why. It's all about verse 12. Take a look at verse 12, Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. The end of that verse 12, which is the golden rule, I think Jesus is summarizing everything that he set up above because he's about to turn the last corner and head in a different direction in the Sermon on the Mount here. He says, this is how one of my followers acts. Pharisees, people who are listening to me, if you think salvation is all about following the law and the prophets, well, here it is. There it is, everything up above. That's the true fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And you can see it in the heart of a believer who realizes their spiritual bankruptcy. You can see it in the heart of a believer who has this different view of God's law. You can see it in a heart of dependence upon the Lord, both spiritually and physically. This is all about the heart. And you're about to see it come to ultimate fulfillment and completion and consummation in the life of Jesus Christ from this point forward. Because like nobody else in all of history, he understands the golden rule and he acts on it perfectly. As 100% man and 100% God, he actually acts on it perfectly in regard to both the Lord and to humanity. He understands, as God stepped out of heaven, that God wants nothing more than for his glory and fame to be made known to the ends of the earth and for humanity to be brought into right relationship with him, and he goes to the cross to achieve that. He also understands, being 100% man, that what humanity needs more than anything else is to be saved from sin, and he goes to the cross to achieve that. That is the law and the prophets. They've all been pointing to him. It's lived out right there in front of you. And so I think in these verses, when Jesus is thinking back on everything that, is, that he's taught, he says, hey, and if you need help in any of this, then you need to pray. Here's what we know for certain about the passage. Just look through some of the wording in here. Ask, and it will be given to you. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If then you are evil, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to you? The passage isn't about the getter. It's about the giver. This passage isn't so much about how we ask. It's about the nature of God to give. That he is good. That because he is your good father, he will give to you. More important than the nature of our asking is the nature of our good father. So go ahead. Be it spiritual or material, ask. Ask. God is going to give you good gifts. Your earthly father's 
who are marked by sin and are capable of evil typically do good to their children, then you better believe that your heavenly Father, who is perfect and sinless and holy and righteous and infinitely loving, is going to give good gifts to his children who ask. As your good Father, God always responds. It may not look like what you want it to, or you might not look like what you think it should, but he's always going to give you what is ultimately best. He's never going to make a mistake in that. And that's why, in all things, we can depend on the unchanging nature of our good, good Father. I'm going to invite the worship band up. We're going to close.